it's good, really good to be here with you. I'm thoroughly enjoying worshipping with you and uh, excited about sharing the Word of God with you. Really feel God's put something on my heart for the whole weekend. <clears throat> Tension between enjoying the worship and thinking, oh yeah, I want to get on now and preach on the back of that. So, you know, you want to carry on worshipping and preaching all at the same time. I suppose we could try that, but... Um, just uh, just because uh, I'm, I'm all very organized. So I said, we're okay, we've got a bit longer than half past ten. About quarter to eleven or something. Children's workers. Yeah, it's just that sometimes they all start. Yeah, so just relax. You know, we've got 40 minutes, 45 minutes. We won't, we'll go for a later coffee break. At least we can be flexible when we're on occasion like that, which is good. I just need to know that people aren't all going to come. Ah, come and get your children and stuff. Okay, great. Praise the Lord. Well, what's on my heart for this weekend is to talk to you about being an Elijah people. That's the title of the first talk, um, an Elijah people. But actually, I will look at uh, a big picture stuff, what I believe God's calling us to as a people, and you two uh, here as part of that. And I'm also going to look at um, some quite personal things. We'll be looking at uh, faith. We'll be looking at handling discouragement. Um, as well as the bigger picture. So uh, with God's grace and help, you know, I want to cover those things, rooting it into parts of the story of Elijah, which is in 1 Kings. Uh, We're going to start off in 1 Kings 17 in a moment. If you want to find that, it's fine. We won't be reading it for a minute. But what I just want to say is that introduction is just to get you excited about the Bible we're going to read. I think sometimes, even as Christians, we can be sort of on the back foot you know, it's our holy book, and there's other holy books. There's the Quran, and there's this, and there's that, and there's all these interesting Hindu mythical thingies. And, you know, we live in an age with pluralism and all sorts of religious uh, claptrap, really. And to be honest, this book is remarkable. It really is remarkable. It is not like others. It's not. Uh, I can remember when I was at university, I had a non Christian friend. I used to share a an apartment with three non-Christians. As a Christian, that was very good for me, and it was very interesting. And one of them used to mock this, oh, yeah, some old boy sat in his cave, made it up, what will I write tonight, ha, ha, ha. I said, it's nothing like that. It was nothing like that. This is an incredible document. It's really a library of 66 books. It's like a bookshelf rather than a book. If you're a new Christian, you don't have to start at the beginning. You're only starting with the first book. You can take a book off the shelf. You know, it can be Matthew's Gospel, John's Gospel, and that's fine. It's written by 44 different authors over a period of over 1,600 years. This is not one person in their cave one night. It's not a Quran, you know, and all that nonsense and all the things that, that came out of that. One guy, Muhammad, and all the rest. No, no. This is 44 different people, 1,600 years. Originally, three different languages. Real people, real history, real God. And these people encounter God. God reveals himself to them. In their nitty-gritty lives, in the day-to-day challenges, the day-to-day confusions and battles, God speaks to them. God reveals himself. It's all about God's revelation. God revealed himself, and the Holy Spirit inspired some of that to be written down. I think stuff happened that's not here, but some of it's written down. God got what he wanted in this book, and it ties together amazingly. It links beautifully. There's lots of incredible layers like an onion to it. It's a fascinating book. It does, it's not all riddles and mysteries. It's written to communicate truth. It's written to connect with you. God wants you to meet him as you read this and as you listen. God speaks by the same Holy Spirit. 
It's, it's genius because the, the, the reality of their lives clicks with us. They're people who made mistakes. They're sinners. They're, the heroes of the Bible aren't like anything like mythical, weird heroes you read in other. I did a little bit of study on other religions to prepare myself for teaching. I had to. I went to a secular university and we did, in some of my preparation, did look at other religions, which I found useful historically. But that's, th- this is very different. It's very different. It's, think of anybody. Think of David. Think of the guy we're going to see in a few, over the next few days, Elijah. Very real, ordinary people. In some ways, very different. But that's true of all cultures. But human beings. And as we understand what God was showing them, what God was doing with them, God speaks to us and applies it to our lives. That's what we want to see happen this morning and through these next few, uh, what, two days. So we're going to look at being an Elijah people. I'm going to set the scene for you. Again, remember all the time, this is real history. It's real people, real events. Seen really just a little bit different from God's perspective. So it's what God saw as important. So for the first few minutes, I'm just going to set the scene leading up to Elijah. Because there are 58 years between King Solomon, who was probably the peak of Israel's uh, period, historically, followed on from David's time of great prosperity and peace. Solomon already began to lose the plot with God. It's not for us today, but he began that process. And then for 58 years, he was followed by a number of kings who were all not very good. This one isn't on the PowerPoint, but the first one was a guy called Jeroboam. And it says, even after this, Jeroboam did not change his ways but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. You just need to know this man who should have worshipped God and should have followed God because God had commissioned him to be the king. He actually, first of all, ignored all God's rules. He appointed anybody who wanted to be a priest could be a priest. And they worshipped at the high places. That was occult places. They didn't worship in the temple. And it was just chaos. And uh, this was the sin of the house of Jeroboam led to its downfall and destruction from the face of the earth. So the first one after Solomon did not do well. But with my friend's help at the back, we're going to quickly go through those first. We don't need to read these chapters. You'll get the picture. Just see what happened over those 58 years. Here's the next one. Uh, 1 Kings 15, 26. And he did eat. Great. Well done. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking the ways of his father and his sin that he caused Israel to commit. Right. That was, in fact, Nadab, if you want to know the name. The next one's got a cool name, Basha. And this is what happened to him. 1 Kings 15, 34, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam in his sin, which he caused Israel to commit. So here's another one. Then we had a slightly different, this is slightly longer, 1 Kings 16, this is Eliah. Zimri, one of his officials who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. The king is Elah, or whatever his name is, E-L-A-H. He was in Terza, I'm not too good on the names. This is the king, at that time he was getting drunk. So the king's drunk. And the man in, and Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him. So this is like really rubbish leadership, isn't it? The king's drunk. Somebody comes in and kills him. And because of all the sins Basher and his son Elah had committed, it caused Israel to commit. They provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger by their worthless idols, still worshipping worthless idols. Let's see how Zimri did. He took over the next one, 1 Kings 16. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace set the palace on fire around him. So he committed suicide. And so he died because of his sins, walking in the ways of Jeroboam. So he gets drunk and gets assassinated. The next one uh, commits suicide. So then we move on to Omri, who was the next one. 
But Omri, this is 1 Kings, whatever it is, thank you. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and his sin, which he caused Israel to commit. So they provoked the Lord to God to anger worthless idols. And then we come to the next guy, Ahab. And now we're focusing about 58 years later. This is a, a bet where we're going to stop around Ahab's time. But Ahab took over from Omri. Thank you. This is 1 Kings 16. You're ahead of me. Well done. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He's even worse. He not only, let's just pause for a moment. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which is idolatry and all that other stuff, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So he gets right off the track. He's now got a, a really a very evil woman and his wife who, who, who these are hugely pagan occult religions where they sacrifice children actually it's gross stuff and he began to serve Baal and worship him now here before we move on here's an interesting thing if you were to read real human history Ahab's rule wasn't that bad the economy was pretty healthy he built quite a lot of cities in various places God's not interested in any of that. God's verdict is this. He was absolutely dreadful. He was worse than any others. And God's perspective is not always our perspective. It's not about material comfort, which some people would have enjoyed for quite a while under Ahab. Things got a bit late, tough later on, as we'll see perhaps in our story. But, but actually, he handled the economy quite well. But he took the country way, way away from God. And it's pretty grim reading. Now, here's our first lesson. Could I have the next slide up? Political change did not signal a change in spiritual outlook. Now, this may seem obvious, but I really want you to get this. The answer to your country and my country's need is not political change. Right? They had political change, one after the other, different varieties, one sort of problem after another sort of problem. The answer was a spiritual answer. The answer came from a different source. The need of the country, the, the, the desperation of the country was going to be met from a totally different source from just having another king. Now, I actually, I found when I first studied this last year or so, I found this quite fascinating because I'm 60 this year. So the period between Solomon and Elijah is roughly my lifetime. And I thought about my lifetime in the UK. I'm not going to bore you with UK history, but we've had a lot of prime ministers. When I was born, Churchill was prime minister. You won't know some of these names, but we had a guy called Macmillan and then a guy called Wilson and Heath and Callaghan. Now, actually, they varied. Callaghan was quite left-wing. Wilson was quite left-wing. And in the 1970s, we had a lot of socialism. Then came the great Margaret Thatcher, who was quite an interesting character, a very good leader. She was very right-wing. And she brought a lot of balance, maybe. Many of them did quite good things in some areas. Then uh, there was John Major, a bit of confusion around then. Then we had Tony Blair, who was quite a character, uh, more Mill Road sort of socialism with a bit of right wing mixed into it. Nobody quite understood what he really believed in, but he seemed to do quite well. Then it all went pear-shaped with Tony Blair, and we had Gordon Brown, who was a bit of a disaster from our point of view. And now we've got Mr. Cameron, really a sort of 
sort of, people laugh about it being a civil partnership. I don't know if you know what that means. Because Cameron and Clegg look like a gay couple who got married. You know, they're, they're together. That's so people make fun of them like that because they, they actually do work quite well together. And they're quite pleasant and sort of posh and speak nicely to each other. But so we, we've, ha- we've had everything. We've had left wing. We've had a woman leader, I think more than many countries, a good woman leader too, in many ways. We've had right wing. We've had two guys sort of working together. Uh, and you know, we've tried everything. And I tell you, although the economy's done that, spiritually, Britain is absolutely awful. It's as, it's as, uh, it's as broken down morally as ever. There's chaos in terms of family life. Nobody knows what to do about sexual morality. There's huge social problems. Yeah, we've had some prosperous times, actually, and some rubbishly times, too. Not good, some bad. That's not been the issue. Actually, morally and in family life and in personal life, things have gone down and down. Now, the good news is the church has begun to change. And this may be true. I think it is true with Canada as well. The church in general is in a better place than where it was when I was a youngster. So over 40 years, there are... I mean, I've been leading a church bigger than I ever went to for about 25 years. I mean, I went to a church that was about 100, 120, and Hastings, King's Church Hastings, which Don and I were leading back in the 80s, broke through the 100 barrier about 1980. And, you know, Hastings was nearly 400 members, gathering 450 when I moved to Winchester, which is 350, 400 now. So I've been leading churches over 200. So lots of good stuff's happening in the church. I'm not just about numbers. I'm just using that as a guide. And uh, these churches didn't exist 40 years ago. And there's lots of good things going on in in even other churches. The Anglicans, you've heard of Alpha. You do Alpha, don't you? That came out of uh, a huge sort of renewal in areas of the Anglican church. So there's lots of exciting things going on, as there are amongst you. But I want to bring a sober note. The nation hasn't really changed yet. And I don't know about you guys, because it is slightly different to the UK. But I want to see my nation change. I want to see it impacted with the gospel. And actually, so far, in Britain anyway, and I think that's broadly true of North America, both yourselves and, and the States, although there's a lot of Christianity about, the actual, what we would call revival has not happened. We aren't seeing thousands of people saved. We aren't seeing the equivalent to the Wilbur, William Wilberforce's emerge. We aren't, which is what happens with revival. Some people are called to do big stuff in the nation. We haven't really seen that. I believe that is on God's plan. I believe God wants a lot more than two or 300 people having a great time together in Fredericton. He wants to change Fredericton. He wants to change Canada and impact it. Not to totally make it, uh, you know, like a, a God country, because I don't think that will happen this side of the new heavens and new earth, but to change it, to stop the moral and spiritual decline. The drug abuse. When I was at university, people were taking drugs, yes, but it was the few in the universities. Now kids have got them in all our schools. It's ridiculous. It's all over the drug problems with 14-year-olds and 30-year-olds. The whole thing, sins like that. It's like yeast. It just grows and grows. When I, in the 60s, when I told you last night we had a debate about God, another debate we had is, is sex right before marriage? This is a secular school, 1960s. Is, is it right to have sex before you're married? That would be laughable in a secular school today. Most people are embarrassed to say they're a virgin if they're over about 15 or 16. They have to 
be brave to say that I'm still a virgin. What a terrible decline. What a terrible decline that we must not, even in good churches, like I lead a good church, 300 people, having 400, having a great time. We've got to remember, out there, not much has changed yet. And what God is looking for is an Elijah people. I just want to make a, another comment. The next one is the tedium of evil. It's a bit of a, a side comment, but I want to make this comment. Don't get fooled by the devil. In the end, sin is tedious. If you want another word, it's boring. You say, oh, no, surely, John, it's exciting. That's why people get tempted. Actually, underneath, sin is boring and tedious. When you read these chapters, I've only skimmed them, it's boring. He did evil. He did this. He burnt himself. He got drunk. He did that. He got chopped up. He got killed. Nothing of quality is happening. Nothing's happening. I mean, do you try and look at celebrity magazines or pop culture? I do a little bit. You know, look at what's happening. What is it always? You, I mean, I could just glance down and remind myself of the list because then once you grin, but it always happens, isn't it? Drugs, alcohol abuse, broken relationships, promiscuity, rehab, back, drugs. Al- you can't be a celebrity if you haven't been into drugs and had rehab and, you know, had a few messed up relationships and now, oh, yeah. That's, that is it. That is so rubbish. That, what a way to live. And that people look, think, that's how you live. Yeah, it's drugs, rehab. You have loads of broken relationships. Maybe you have a, this and that. Try a bit of sort of other sexuality. And then you go into rehab. And you come out again. And you can talk on the, or for a Winfrey, whatever her name is. You can talk on the television. And then you, people look, oh, yeah, we do that too. Yeah, yeah, it's drugs, rehab. That's sin. <laughs> that is sin. It's tedious. Goodness has originality. The devil is not a creator. He's a destroyer and a twister. Honestly, he doesn't come up with new ideas. There is not anything new under the sun. And really, where creation comes from is God. And actually, church, we've got to realize that. We've got to let the Spirit of God do that in us. Because the church has not done well in reflecting that. But God is a creative God. And where, where you find, and this is true of my country, honestly, it really is. Where you find creative wholesome things growing in society, often you will find a root which is in the church. Often not there now. Everything decent about our society is not because we're democracy and Western. Things like schools, things like hospitals, things like decent medication, prison reform. In the UK, and I did history, so I do know, in the UK you can trace it all back to evangelical Christians. Not just Wilberforce, all sorts of people. Even uh, working conditions. Kids were working 18 hours a day till Christians got hold of that and said, this is wrong. You know, ch- uh, the age of sexual consent in Britain was brought in by a Christian because he was so appalled at child prostitution in Victorian London. Victorian, pedophile, Philia isn't new. Child prostitution was rampant in Victorian London until a Christian called W.T. Stead got hold of this. He campaigned and campaigned until the age of consent was one of the reforms. You know, if you have sex with someone under age of 16, it's against the law. And he had tremendous opposition from very high people. And it's always Christians who do stuff that makes society better, are creative, and say, this has got to change. Not like, oh, well, people always do that. You know, we've always been abusing children. No, we're going to stop abusing children. We're going to change the law. We're going to tell people about this. And that's actually, you can find that at every level. Sin is boring. 
God is creative. And life apart from the living God is fundamentally tedious. I warn you now, if you're not a Christian here today, in the end, if you want excitement and hope and expectation in your life, you need to come to God. Because without God, it's hopeless and fundamentally tedious. Yeah, you'll get drunk, you'll get high occasionally and feel very low afterwards. In the end, real lift, real life comes from God. It doesn't come from money and possessions, by the way. It doesn't come from a high career. It comes from God. That's where the real buzz in life will come from. Let's go on to something more exciting. 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, he breaks right in into this tedious record of evil. As the Lord lives, the God of Israel, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is Elijah. It's the verse we're going to have in our minds this morning. He came right in and spoke into it. But let's learn a little more from the New Testament. Thank you. If you could put up James 5. Just tells us a little bit more about him. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So we're just told a little about it. Elijah was just like us. Now, remember that phrase, because over these two days, we're going to learn that's true. He was a man just like us, just like you and me. Honestly, Gary. I may, he may, he may, at times, he may have been worse than we've been yet. I mean, did you know Elijah was suicidal? We'll see that tomorrow at one point. Elijah was a man of frailty, just like us. But God used him. Let's talk a bit about him. Let's go on to Elijah. Who was he? Elijah seems to appear from nowhere. His introduction is what we've just read. Now, Elijah. And the Bible says to us, remember, well, I've just read it, he was a normal person. Because some of the stuff he did doesn't look that normal. We're not going to even look much at Mount Carmel, but you probably know that one about all the fire falling and all that. And you think, oh, that's not normal. He was just like us. This is what God says. And actually, when you look carefully at the story, it's true. Elijah was just like us. The difference, of course, not that it's that different, was that he had a faith in a great God. So have we. <laughs> we just got to learn how do we line up with Elijah. There's a guy like us, and God called him and used him. Some people say that Elijah's a bit like a forerunner of Jesus Christ. You know, some, you, can, you can get Jesus out of everything in the Old Testament. Rightly so. Rightly so. You know, so in many ways, he is a forerunner of Jesus in some way. But actually, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus seems to see him as something slightly different. He seems to see him more like a, a John the Baptist figure. And then there's another little hint in Scripture of, of, of an Elijah people or an Elijah time before the return of Jesus. I don't want to get into the details of that, but you pick that up as you read a little carefully in Malachi and one or two other places. And so it seems that Elijah is a picture of, he prepares the way for God's encounter. Actually, Elijah didn't see all he hoped to see, which we'll see tomorrow. It's quite interesting. Probably more fully things happened under his successor, Elisha, Elisha who did twice as much. But he prepared the way, and I believe we are a people who prepare the way for God to break in. We prepare the way, maybe in the end, for one day, one generation is going to prepare the way for Jesus to come back. Now, we don't know the day and the time, but it's a lot closer than it used to be. Must be. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 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 and actually, you know, a bit of logic tells you, 
you know, we know where the whole world is now. When they, you know, whether a thousand years ago, they didn't know all about Canada and Australia and places like that. And now all Adam and Eve's fallen sons and daughters can be told the gospel. Now it can be true that there can be someone in heaven from every nation and tribe and tongue. That wasn't true till about 200 years ago or less. Now you can reach the whole world with the gospel so that things like the gospel of the kingdom must go to the whole world and then the end will come. It looks a little more possible without me trying to do a stupid thing like that guy who said it was last Saturday or something. But, but to be honest with you, forget that nonsense. There is a sense of expectation in our spirits. And uh, whether it's about revival or whether it's about the big one, Jesus coming back, we need to be a people who prepare the way for God to break in. And Elijah did that. He was different from the rest of his generation. If you're a Christian, if you're in the church, you will be different. You know, Elijah stood out. I don't know how he got to talk to Ahab, but he mustn't have looked at home amongst Ahab and his court. Just think of it. Ahab was actually quite rich, as I told you. He was quite successful as a king. He got this foul but probably rather glamorous wife, Jezebel, who was into a cult. Probably she was a scary lady to me. I bet she was. You can imagine what she looked like, all glammed up and really scary eyes. And uh, <laughs> demonized up to the eyebrows. And then you've got all the courtiers and others around him. And, you could just, and, and, and Ahab turns up and says to him, it's not going to rain till I say so. Now, Ahab was not from the top drawer, as we say in England. He hadn't been to Eton and Cambridge and Oxford. Ahab came from an area called Tishbe, which is, you don't know much about it, but basically it's a backwards area. He, uh, Ahab, I said, sorry, I meant Elijah, of course. Elijah came from Tishbe, a backwards area. It was a shepherding area. So the only people there were really farmers and shepherds. And uh, he just, he, he, there was no way he fitted in and yet he was not frightened to stand and speak for God in that situation. Now, you've got to be used to that. As a Christian, you will often not fit in. We often are not people out of the top drawer. That is how God uses people. They often are the nobodies and the have-nots. It is God's way. There's very few exceptions to that. Even think of David, the, the one they didn't even bother to bring for the lineup in front of Samuel. He was too in, insignificant to even bring him in. He was out in the fields. So often it's places like Hastings and Fredericton and ch- churches like the meeting place. What's that? You know, who was it? You know, you know, it's often God uses people like, or uses people like you with a really messed up background or something or think, you know, I'm, I haven't gone to university. You know, all that stuff. It's just what God loves to do. So be open to God using you because that's exactly the sort of person he used here. Elijah was right out of that background. Now, he, he was, I think there's an interesting thing here. He wasn't afraid to engage with the culture. Do you know what I mean? He, didn't, he wasn't in his cave in Tishbe. Oh, what a dreadful state the nation's in. Oh, Lord, I thank you. I'm holy. I don't eat much. I live in this cave. It's very peaceful. I just have a glass of water and a bit of sheep's dung to eat or whatever he does. You know, he, he wasn't, it wasn't like that. He got right into the center, but he didn't join it. He didn't become one of the courtiers, get rid of his rough clothes and start to speak properly. He, he got in there, but he engaged with it. And he said, what you're doing is not right. God's going to do something in this country, and I'm going to tell you what he's going to do. And I think that is a balance we need to get. It doesn't matter who we come back from. We need Christians engaging our culture, not just hiding in a cave or staying in Tishbe where nobody will bother them. But, but getting in and saying, this has got to change. 
which is basically what Elijah does. Now, what motivated him? Let's go on to the next point. I think it's the next point. You're doing really well if you can keep up with me. He's doing really well. Well done. Uh, What motivated him? Well, we get a clue in 1 Kings 19.10. So if you could just put that up. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. It's obvious, isn't it? What motivated Elijah? Why did he come out of the backwoods, out of Tishbe, where he probably was safe and he knew everything? He was probably brought up in a farming community, actually. What, 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 what drove him out of that into the alien environment of Ahab and his court to come and speak to the king was his zeal for the Lord God Almighty. Elijah's heart burnt with a passion for God. Does your heart burn? That's all you need. You, you, I, I'm zealous for God. I want to see God's name. I want to see Jesus lifted high. I want people to honor you, not use you as a swear word. I just love God. And I just am so upset at the state of my nation's behavior towards God. I don't think he was firstly just bothered about the, the bad human behavior. It was what this, it, they've ignored God. They don't understand God. Now, I believe you and I need a holy indignation. It's, it's growing in me about the UK. I mean, in the UK, I think it is different from probably the general North American sea. We have a lot of atheism very openly on the media, a lot of agnostic. Our, our culture is very clearly anti-Christian in the UK. It's very secular. It's one of the most secular countries in the world. And it, you know, only about 5% of people go to church. But actually, it's also arrogantly now atheistic in many areas. You know, you'll know of a Richard Dawkins and people like that. But that sort of thing is, is much more picked up by the media and made much of. Whereas Christians are, generally speaking, portrayed very poorly in the media. There have been some very, I've been looking at some very well-done research, proper stuff that's been even presented to the BBC and ITV. Say, so look, Christians are always in soap operas. They're always nutcases. They're always pedophiles or wife beaters or maniacs. You never, you know, and there's a lot of respect for Muslims because obviously they'll blow you up, won't they? You know, the Christians won't blow you up, so you can kick them as much as you like. And, and, and actually, it's really noticeable. They're an easy target. This is supposed to be a Christian country. The Queen's supposed to be head of the Church of England, for goodness sake. You know, and I'm speaking from a UK point of view. Yours may be slightly different, but actually, I'm off my track here. What am I saying? Oh, yeah, we need a passion for the name of God. That I don't want Jesus to be mocked. You can blaspheme Jesus. Now, I'm not going to blow anyone up. I'm not going to send anybody a parcel bomb for doing a blasphemous film. I'm never going to do that. But I make, make it put steel in you to preach the gospel. Steel in you not to send a parcel bomb, but to preach the gospel. Not to go and, you know, throw paint over the BBC's front door, but to preach the gospel. We're going to tell them what Jesus is really like. He's the hope of the world. He's the only hope you've got. And he loves you. And it's a love revolution. Not in a soppy way, but in a powerful, godly way. The grace of God will overabound where sin abounds. Hallelujah. But you need a passion for that. A passion for the gospel. Not just an angry man thing or an angry woman thing, but a passion. Turn that indignation, which is in Elijah, into a passion and a zeal for the living God. Do you see how Elijah describes himself? As the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve. You serve the living 
God. Elijah thinks, I serve the living God. Now, don't think, because he's a hero in the Bible, don't think, oh, well, it's easy for Elijah. It was not easy for Elijah. In Ahab's reign, the Lord God, Jehovah, was out of fashion. The thing that was in fashion was Baal worship. It was everywhere. Jezebel was having prophets of Jehovah executed. They were being killed in their scores. And some of them were saved by a guy called Obadiah. It's another part of a different story, same period, who saved them in a cave. So being a prophet, just to turn up and say, I'm a prophet of the living God, could mean death. Just to do it. Do you see that? This is worse than it is in in England or or Canada. I mean, this guy, this was not an easy time. It was out of fashion. And the bar worship had its superficial attractions. It had orgies. That's not bad for some people. That's great. I worship God and get an orgy thrown in. So it got orgies. It had got occult power, definitely occult power, which you sense from Jezebel. There was a lot of exciting, weird stuff around Baal worship. I mean, it's quite exciting to watch sacrifices, people being killed in front of you. People seem to like that sort of thing. Just think of your computer games or your films. Or think of the Romans. There's a gruesomeness to seeing blood. Yeah, as long as it's not yours. So actually, there was something scarily attractive. Baal worship was where the action was, man. To say, I worship Yahweh is not actually the fashion. But, but look how Elijah comes in. I worship the living God whom I serve. And you do too. You do. You don't, yeah, I don't do that. I don't do tarot cards. I'm not into new age. I don't do that. I'm not Hindu, mystic, yoga, blah, blah, blah. I serve the living God. There is a living God and I serve him. It's wonderful. Sends tingles down your spine. I hope it does. You need tingles down your spine. You go to work, you need to realize, I serve the living God. You don't need to tell them every minute. They'll get fed up with it. But when you go in there, you go in as someone who serves the living God. I turn up to work, do my computer, do my medicine, do my whatever I do. I serve the living God. Debbie, you go in, you serve the living God in that place. They may not always let you say what you like to say. That's true in England. But I'm there serving the living God. That's how Elijah saw himself. That's how his security, that's what motivated him. I'm a servant of the living God. You're worshipping all this weird stuff. Some of it looks pretty exciting. But he knew there was one living God and he served him. Do you know the God who lives? I hope you do. If you know the living God and serve him, you never need to be at a disadvantage in any situation. In the midst of the atheism, and particularly more than materialism, which is everywhere in our culture, confusion about religion, corruption, all sorts of things, let this be the driving force of your life. I serve the living God 24-7. When I'm in school, when I'm in hospital, when I'm in the shop, Whatever I'm doing, I'm really serving the living God. And those convictions will, will, will show. They'll show in your life. They'll show in your words. They'll show in how you react to your difficulties, your challenges. They'll show how you react to trouble at work when the, you know, people start losing their jobs and all the things that tend to be happening a bit in our country at the moment. How you react will not become because you try and, oh, I try to be Christian now. I've got to suddenly be a Christian. How does a Christian behave? No, no. You live... Serving the living God. My life is in his hand. I trust him. That's who I trust. And people will notice it. And people will pick it up in this generation. Well, let's come to what's my last point. But it will take a few minutes. So don't get too excited about the coffee. 
What did Elijah do? It will only take a few minutes. You all look through your watches. I shouldn't have said that, should I? Okay, what did he do? There's two points here that are very important as we come to the end of this first talk. What did he do? Well, the first thing is he prayed. So we can put the word prayer up there. He's zealous for God, but what do you do? Now, the book of James tells us that he, was, he prayed earnestly. He prayed earnestly. That's a lovely word. It's a phrase you get in James. We don't actually know much about it from kings. We need James to tell us that he was a man of faith and prayer. And actually, when he appears here in 1 Kings 17, I don't think this is the beginning of his prayer life. In fact, I know it isn't. I'm going to explain it to you because I know it isn't. He comes having prayed. This guy does not wake up one morning looking after his sheep in Tishbe, think, this country's in a terrible mess. I'm going to go and see Ahab. No, 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 that's not like that. This is a guy who has prayed earnestly, and he's had breakthrough with God, which is all to do with the, it's not going to rain. You're going to see that in a moment. That business about it's not raining, going to rain, comes out of his prayer life. Honestly, it really does, and I'm going to show you how it does. So he comes confidently, as the Lord my God lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You think, what's this guy? What's he on? You know, he comes in and says to the king, there's not going to rain for three, except unless I say so. Now, that is rooted back in his prayer life. That is not like the guy's crackers and he's just woken up and decided to say that. It's actually rooted in his prayer life. He prayed earnestly. And I can tell you what he prayed. He prayed out of the word of God. The next screen will give you this. It's a little long, but it's worth reading. He knew his Bible. This is Elijah's Bible, okay? What we call the Pentateuch. This is written by Moses. Here it is. This is God speaking to his people, Israel. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle. You will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain on the ground and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Do you know what Elijah did? He got into God's face. He prayed about his nation. He said, God, it says in your word, when we worship idols, you will stop it raining. You're going to intervene. Now, this is a different covenant to ours. I'm not suggesting we're praying praying about the weather. But for him, this is his Bible. Well, we've got something to learn from it, right? So don't let me get too complicated. But he's getting the word of God and he's praying the word of God. He's not praying in a vacuum. His faith is focused on God's word. Somewhere, Elijah did business with God. He said, this country is just in chaos. They're worshipping Baal. They're sacrificing children. God, it's everything we shouldn't do. You said you'd give us a drought to wake us up. Please do what you said. Somewhere, he got faith on it. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. So he went in and he said, it's not going to rain. Until I say so. Now, his say so is not just his willpower. He's going to hear from God. He's going to know there's a moment in God, which is three, two or three years later, that moment on Mount Carmel when there's another breakthrough. But that is something he's going to hear from God. He's got, he's prayed earnestly, and he says, I know God is going to intervene and it's not going to rain. Because God said, when we do what we're doing now, he'll stop the heavens. 
And that's the root of his prayer. Why did he pray? He prayed because he assumed that God was in control. Do you know that? When you pray, and you may have to pray earnestly, brothers and sisters. It won't be one quick prayer, dear God, bless my family. It may be with tears and earnestness. But you know there's someone who can change this situation. It's God. God's in control. He prayed because he knew God could do what God had said he would do. God had said he would do this, and he could do this. God can stop the rain, and he's promised, well, sort of promised in a way, that's what he'll do. So he prayed what he knew God had promised to do. And he prayed, I would say, because he knew his own weakness. He was just like us. I'm a farmer from Tishbe. What can I do about this king with all his army and all his obscene behavior? God, you are bigger than that. Will you do? Will you show your God in this thing? And as he got into as that and prayed earnestly, he had faith. It's not going to rain. So I'm going to go and tell them. They need the next point. They need proclamation as well. We have got to be a people of prayer and a people of proclamation. You see, he knew his prayers were answered, but he must help Ahab, if I can put it that way, and the nation to make the connection. Otherwise, they just think, oh, you know, we've offended the rain god. Ooh, we better go and sacrifice a couple of more children. That might make it rain. You know, someone's got to tell them what's going on. Someone's got to make the connection and say, you need to come back to God. So having prayed, he didn't sit in his cave thinking, ha-ha, drought, that'll teach him. Someone's got to go and proclaim the truth about God, which is what he does. He goes and proclaims the God who is the living God, who controls everything, is going to stop the rain until I say so and you turn back to the living God. Now, our gospel is not quite like that. I understand that. But there are lessons to learn. We learn from how God spoke to Elijah for how he speaks to us. We understand what he's doing then to understand what he's doing now. It's the same. We need to pray. When you have a church prayer meeting, be there. It is the most important meeting of the church. When you pray on your own, you maybe you're worried about your kids and your family, the best thing you could do is pray earnestly. Honestly. We've learned that through experience. That is where the battle is really won. But then you need proclamation. Somewhere you have to tell people. <laughs> Sometime you've got to get out there and say, it's God you've got to do business with, which is where he got to when we start the story. He comes out and starts proclaiming. Now, he knew it was going to get worse, actually, and he was going to experience the drought like everybody else, like we do. We're not in a bubble as Christians. We experience hassle. We experience difficulties. But we have a different perspective. Elijah had a very different perspective to the rest of the country. He knew this was God's judgment. He knew the answer was to come back to God. And he was going to keep saying that. And we can say, sometimes we can get on the back foot. We think, well, actually, my own family isn't brilliant. And, and, you know, but, but, yeah, look, but we know the answer is Jesus. And we mustn't be on the back foot. We say, look, this country is only going to get sorted out when it looks to God and turns back to him. And we actually need to say to individuals, it's not about an easy life being a Christian. It's about hope in the difficulties of life. This country was going to go through actually great difficulties with the drought. And Elijah was going to experience difficulties with that. We'll see that at another point. But actually, he had a totally different perspective. God's in control. God's on the throne. This is God doing stuff. And I'm looking for God to bring us through the other side. I want to say to you, 
just as I finish, you know, being a Christian is not going to um, protect you, buffer you from difficulties. You will have difficulties. But the perspective is totally different if you're a follower of the living God. You need to draw from your faith. You need to pray earnestly. You need to keep speaking out the truth of God, proclaiming the truth. And actually, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't quite know what it is to know the living God, can I encourage you to keep coming over the next few talks? I know I'm speaking because I know most people here do follow the living God. I'm speaking like that. But in it, I'm going to give you a little help, I hope, even in the next one after the break, just what you could do to get your own connection with God. Because the bottom line of this proclamation for us is that not about droughts, it's we want everybody to know Jesus. I can honestly, honestly say there is no one I can think of, in fact, there is no one, who would not be better off knowing Jesus Christ who I know. Could be Prince William, or it could be the alcoholic lying in the gutter, or anybody in between. They all need to know Jesus. We should never feel there's anybody. They may have some challenges out of knowing Jesus. There may be some difficulties, but they're always, always going to be better off to know the living God than not to know him. They'd be better off to be told and proclaimed. So we're going to pray and we're going to proclaim. Amen? Amen. And we're going to also have a cup of coffee.